for those of you who don't uh, know me, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Faith Lutheran Church, and uh, I want to say welcome. It's good to have each and every one of you here. I see a few new faces today. Today, we're actually concluding a sermon series called Essential Faith. And the sermon series was really inspired uh, several months ago when we were talking about essential workers. Remember when we had that conversation where there were just a handful of people in our nation, in our communities who were considered essential workers? And uh, as the quarantine went on, uh, the list of essential workers got longer and longer. And pretty soon, all of us kind of felt like we were essential, right? And uh, the idea behind this uh, sermon series is that this, in many ways, has been the great dilemma of the church. It's really sorting out what's essential, what's necessary, what's core uh, to being followers of Jesus Christ, and what does it mean uh, versus all those kind of other things, those things that are, well, we'll just say non-essential, right? And uh, so we we started a couple weeks ago uh, with a three-legged stool, custom-made just for this worship service and this sermon series. And we looked at this three-legged stool really looking at three different uh, aspects that are core or essential to what it means to be a Christ follower and to be a part of uh, the Christian church. And we started a couple weeks ago looking at the first leg of the stool, uh, which is orthodoxy. Ortho, uh, meaning true or correct, uh, something uh, that is, is uh, essential. Those of you who have ever had braces, think of orthodontist, right? The orthodontist makes your teeth straight. The orthodontist makes your teeth true. They, the orthodontist makes your uh, teeth right. Um, or think of orthopedic, right? Somebody who fixes bones or ligaments, an orthopedic doctor. And, and, and the idea behind this is really uh, inspired by the Apostle Paul and his teachings in Romans 12, where he says, set your minds, use your minds first and foremost as a guide to direct you in your faith. And so we talked about uh, the importance of uh, orthodoxy, doxy meaning doctrine or teaching or of the mind uh, of thoughts. And so we said, you know, this is absolutely essential as a Christ follower that we are focused on correct teaching, right teaching. And of course, as Jesus followers, our correct teaching, our right teaching comes from Scripture. And over and over, we look to God's word to guide us in our lives. The second leg of the stool is, uh, comes from uh, the second term, which is orthopraxis. Uh, pra- praxis meaning uh, practice or living or doing. Praxis is action-oriented. And we said last week, again, from Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says, don't just learn about these things, but actually put them into practice. Do these things. God has given each one of us gifts, not to just kind of uh, celebrate in our lawn chair, right, but to get up and actually do them. And uh, so we said this is the second leg of the stool. So we got, uh, but, it, but it's, 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 it's right practice, not just any practice, but it's right practice. It's orthopraxis. So today we come to our third leg of the stool, orthopathy, orthopathy. How many of you have been sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for me to say orthopathy? Raise your hands. Yeah, probably none of you, right? How many of you know what orthopathy means? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. 
Nobody knows what orthopathy means. How many have ever even heard the word orthopathy? Nobody. Well, I'm going to let you all off the hook this morning. Because if you were to pull out your phones this morning and look up orthopathy in the dictionary, it's not there. Orthopathy is not in any dictionary that I could find. And so you have to be asking yourself the question now, okay, if orthopathy is so important, if it is essential to the Christian faith, why is it not in the dictionary? The short answer is I don't know. But I think the real answer is because orthopathy is so controversial. Orthopathy is so countercultural to the day and time in which we live. I think the writers of our dictionaries today, I don't think they've got the guts to put orthopathy in the dictionary today. That's how controversial it is. But I, I hope to convince all of you uh, that by the end of this message that orthopathy is truly an essential component to our Christian faith. And without orthopathy, we're in big trouble as Christ followers and as the church. And I hope I've got your interest now at this point in time. What is orthopathy, right? Well, we're going to stay in Romans 12 because Paul's going to unpack this idea of orthopathy for us just like he did orthodoxy and orthopraxis. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans 12, and we're going to pick up today right where we left off last week, um, beginning with verse 9. But I'm going to invite us uh, to have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for a beautiful morning today. We thank you, God, for uh, the birds that are singing. We thank you, God, for the rain that showered the earth yesterday evening. God, we thank you for this faithful group of your saints, of your sinners, of your church, in your sanctuary. And God, as we unpack Paul's teaching this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. By the way, you can look at Romans 12 on your phones. That's okay, as long as you're not, I don't know, checking your social media account or something like that. Romans 12, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this, or continues to write this, picking up with verse 9. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. And I think before we move any further, we need to just pause there for just a moment. Because when Paul writes about love, many of us kind of go to that place of, oh yeah, love, right? It's kind of a blanket term in our English language. And it's frankly a problem in our uh, English language. Because I love tacos, but I love my wife and children, right? Does that mean I love tacos like I love my wife and children? Are they the same? Let's hope not, right? <laughs> but that's kind of how we think of love. Love is ill-defined in our culture. And in ancient times, uh, the Greeks had four primary uh, ways of expressing love or communicating love. They had four different uh, verbs uh, to communicate love. And the first one is storge. Storge is a Greek word, and it means love. And as I think about storge love, it's familial love. 
It's the, it's the, that love you maybe have for your family. And I think especially of siblings, because maybe you don't get along with your siblings. I don't know. But you still storge them. You still love them. It's, it's kind of where we get this idea of blood being uh, thicker than water, right? There's just this family connections. Oh, we share a house, but that person irritates me, and, but I still storge. I still love them, right? So that's one understanding of, of, of the Greek word for love. Second uh, understanding of the Greek word of love is, is eros, right? And this is where we get the word erotic. This is the, the, the part uh, of love that we might think of, of our heart going pitter-patter, right? Eros is, is pure emotion, Everybody understand Eros? I mean, this is kind of our common uh, Western American idea of uh, love, of, of Eros. It's, it's, it's emotion and, and passion. The third uh, term uh, for love in the Greek language is philia. And philia, we, you might think of Philadelphia, right? The, the, the city of brotherly love. But they don't mean uh, philia in the sense of brothers of siblings, but philia is more as in deep friends. So you might come to church on Sunday morning and, and, and say, hey, brother, hey, sister. And we're, we're, Greg, we're not brothers, right? But we're brothers in Christ. We have common interests together. And, and that's the idea behind philia in that kind of love. And I love Greg like a brother, we have this common interest. We have this common bond. We've got common experiences together. And so those are three of uh, the many ways in which the Greeks would use the word love. But the word that Paul uses here in Romans 12.9 is none of those three. He uses the word agape. Now, agape is a, a very unusual kind of love. And you've probably heard the word agape before in, uh, from the Greek language. And the interesting thing about uh, the word agape is that it's very uh, one-directional. So think of a one-way street. Agape um, moves uh, in one direction. There's no expectation that agape love is going to go in two directions. So the idea behind agape is all the energy, all the love, all the connection goes one direction. And if it doesn't come back, oh well. But other ideas or understandings behind this idea of agape, it's not really based on emotional. It's not based on feelings. The number one idea behind agape love is that it's based on commitment. Is that I'm committed to that person, whether I feel it or not. That's agape love. And agape love, it, it, it's, it, it, uh, it's rooted in this idea of suffering. Agape love is all about suffering. It's how we walk with someone with endurance and strength. And this is what Paul is talking about as he writes about in Romans 12, verse 9. Let your love be genuine, sacrificial, even suffering, enduring, committed. He goes on and on. Now, agape is used about 200 times in the New Testament. 
you know, oftentimes in reference where God is telling his people how much he loves them, that it's not based on uh, an emotion, a feeling, but it's based on commitment and sacrifice and suffering. And it's one way. God says, I love you. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. I'm just going to love you no matter what, no matter where you're at. I love you. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then Jesus continues to look at his people. He says, this is how I want you to love one another. Agape. Not storge, not eros, not philia, right? Agape. In fact, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Somebody comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, what is the greatest uh, commandment ever? And Jesus says, you shall love agape, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love agape, your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see how understanding this, this, this Greek term agape really adds color and texture and understanding to what Paul is writing about when he says, let love be genuine. So let's go back to orthopathy. Ortho, right, means true. It means correct. It means it's right. It means it's straight. Pathos. And oftentimes when we hear the word pathos, we think of feeling or emotion. And there's some connection to pathos and that feeling and that emotion, right? But at the root of pathos is suffering and sacrifice. And so what is orthopathy? It's right loving. It's loving other people in a right way. And we've now, now as I've kind of unpacked this a little bit with you, we're like, well, of course. Of course that's the third leg of the stool, right? Because it's not just enough to know uh, what is right. It's not just to behave in a certain way, but it's also to have um, that, that, that love that comes from God. It's our attitude. It's our disposition. It's how we interact with one another. Orthopathy is kind of this idea in terms of like even the temperature. Is it warm or cold? Are you warm or cold towards someone? I mean, you can walk into a room or have a conversation with someone and you can judge the orthopathy, right? You know right away uh, if there's a warmth or a coolness in that relationship, in that connection or a particular uh, situation. Sometimes we call this a temper or a temperament. And this is what orthopathy is. And I think the reason why the the writers of the dictionary today refuse to put orthopathy in the dictionary is because it begins with the word ortho. What's true and what's right. See, we live in a day and a time where love is whatever we want it to be, right? Everybody gets to just define however they want to define love. A couple years ago, I was having a conversation with someone, a young woman, about love. And we were kind of going back and forth, really trying to understand one another, and she got really frustrated with me. 
And at one point in time, she threw up her arms and she just said, I don't know what your deal is. Love is love is love is love. And what she really meant was love is whatever I want to define it to be or what anybody else wants it to define it to be, right? That's the, that's the definition of our culture today. Everybody gets to decide love however they want. And Jesus says, no, there are actually boundaries. There are limitations to what love is. And Paul says, let love be genuine, which means, of course, don't let love be fake. See, Paul immediately is putting in a boundary to love. He says it's not just a free-for-all what everybody wants to think about love. There are guidelines for love. You know, the imagery that has really kind of been coming to my mind this past week as I've been uh, meditating on this text is a river. And I think about a river, um, like maybe even or like Sugar Creek or the Mackinac River, or the Mississippi River. And those rivers or those creeks, they function because there's boundaries on each side, right? And every now and then when a river or a creek floods, it's a mess, right? And there's all sorts of uh, destruction, there's devastation, there's chaos, right? I mean, we, we're, we don't really pay attention to the boundaries of rivers until the water overflows. And what do we call a river that overflows, that goes over the boundaries? We call that a flood, right? And floods, if we don't have boundaries, are going to wreak havoc. They're going to cause problems. A couple of years ago, I had a friend. Uh, there was a flood here in Bloomington, and he was driving his car, and uh, there was a lot of rain, and he looked down and uh, saw a bunch of water on the road. And in that moment, he had to decide, what am I going to do? Well, he just decided to go right into uh, that flooded area, not knowing how deep the water was. And you might guess what the consequence was. John, how much did that cost you? 4000 bucks. Is that car running today? Nope. Totaled. See, that's the consequence of floods, right? They cause chaos and destruction. And this is also the cause. What happens when we don't put boundaries on relationships of love? Chaos, destruction, and even death of a relationship. And here we are in the Midwest, and some of you have grown up on farms or have some farm roots. You know that floods cause chaos and destruction and the death of crops. So we've got to pay attention to these boundaries, to these borders that God has given us as it relates to love. There is a true love. It's called orthopathy, a right love. We've only hit one verse so far. Let's keep going. Paul's just going to outline and describe uh, what I'm going to cover here. We, and we could go through every verse and really look at the boundaries for each one. But I want you to just kind of hear these boundaries. Paul says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Over and over, Paul is describing these boundaries in love. Love is not just a free-for-all. Love is love is love does not exist according to God and Scripture. And I know this is controversial in our day and time. But as Christ followers, we follow orthodoxy, Christian teaching, what is true. And Paul says, let love be genuine. You know, one of the things I like about uh, Scripture is it's not just, um, uh, you know, about desires. It's not just about aspirations, but it's also very practical. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, the Bible, it doesn't always tell us what to do or, you know, how to do this. But Paul does. He's going to tell us how do we address these boundaries in love. Paul writes or continues to write. He says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of uh, low position. Do not be conceited. Be humble. Paul tells us how we put these boundaries in for love, and and so much of it really boils down to checking our pride. And I think one of the reasons why we struggle uh, with uh, putting boundaries around love is because we don't have a real clear sense of what pride is all about. See, pride is actually a a two-sided coin, That on the one hand, and most oftentimes when we think about pride, we think of that person, maybe that obnoxious person who's just got lots of self-confidence and lots of self-esteem, right? We think, man, that person's prideful. But there's another side of the coin that's every bit as dangerous uh, with pride, and that's the person with really low self-esteem. It's the person who says, "I'm, I'm, I'm worthless, right? That's also pride. And it's pride because the focus is on ourselves. Either way, whether we uh, uh, think too much of ourselves or we think too little of ourselves, both of those things are pride because the focus, the emphasis is on self. And I think one of the reasons why we struggle so much with pride in our lives is because it, it just festers. It's always there. And it's always wreaking havoc in our relationships C.S. Lewis called pride the granddaddy of all sins. Pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven, right? Satan said, oh, I want to be like God. And then then Satan came to people and said, hey, you can be like God. And so pride just continues to permeate our society and our culture. And pride messes up so many of your relationships in your family. Pride messes up so many relationships at work. Pride messes up so many relationships with your neighbors. And have you ever thought about what the common denominator between all the conflict uh, in relationships in your life and those around you? It's you, right? You're the common denominator. Your pride is the problem. Amen. I think part of the reason why we struggle so much with pride is because we don't understand what humility is either. Paul says, be humble. If you want to really live with uh, right loving, you need to be humble. And oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, I kind of know what uh, humility is, right? 
Somebody will come up to you and say, you know what, you're really good at sports. And you're like, no, nah, I'm not really that good. Or somebody will come up to you and say, you're really good at music. No, nah, I'm not really that good. Hey, you're really good at writing car insurance policies. Oh, I'm not really that good, right? That's not humility. That's just speaking low of yourself. Humility is not just talking ourselves down and telling everybody else how horrible, how rotten we are, how inadequate we are. That's not humility. I want to give you uh, a great quote here from Pastor Rick Warren in his uh, Purpose Driven Life book. Rick Warren writes this about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less. Got to think about that. It's not focusing on me. It's focusing on others. And that's a hard thing to do. Because that means we're going to all of a sudden expend a whole lot of energy, a whole lot of agape love on other people and take the focus and the emphasis away from me. You know, there was a contemporary of Martin Luther uh, during the Protestant Reformation, a French guy by the name of John Calvin. And John Calvin was an extraordinary uh, theologian. He was an extraordinary thinker. If you've ever heard of uh, the concept of uh, predestination, John Calvin was really the one who made that idea, that understanding, that theological idea that God first loves us. It's not what we do, it's what God does, right? God chooses us. And Luther and, and Calvin, they were, they were great pair during the Protestant Reformation because they focused and emphasized different things. He wrote volumes, many, many books, commentaries about Scripture. John Calvin, he was a brilliant mind, and he's continued to shape the church. Here we are 500 years later. And he wrote a book uh, called uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion. It it's, continues to be studied uh, by so many in the church today. John Calvin is the guy who uh, Presbyterians would say, yep, he's our man, just like we Lutherans would say, yep, Martin Luther, he was our guy, right? That's what the Presbyterians would say, ah, Calvin. And they would love to just talk your ear off about John Calvin all day long. And we Lutherans would go, oh, yeah, our guy was the one who got it all started, right? John Calvin was an extraordinary mind. He was very, very accomplished. But one of the things I love, I'll just even say most about John Calvin, is he was also a man of great humility. Because he was getting to be an old man, he looked at his family, he looked at his friends, and he said, here's what I want you to do. After I die... I want my body to disappear. I don't want my body, my gravestone, you know, somewhere where people um, can, from uh, days ahead, come and venerate me as if I'm some great person. 
And you know, today nobody knows where John Calvin is buried because he's a man of humility. He wasn't focused on himself. His contribution was to us, the church. It's not about John Calvin. It's about Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Extraordinary example. So we come back to our three-legged stool. Orthodoxy, right believing. Orthopraxis, right living, right doing. And orthopathy, right loving. We know that if we take away any one of these legs of the stool, we got problems. We got big problems. The stool doesn't stand up. And so this morning, I just want to close by asking you, how is your loving? How's your love meter? And here's the problem, is you can't really self-evaluate very well. You got to ask other people around you, how am I loving? Not love as defined by our culture and our world, but how is my loving as defined by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, by Jesus Christ? How's my loving? I know that's a challenge for all of us. It's a process. It's a journey that we will spend the rest of our lives trying to grow in our loving. And I want to encourage you to look at one another, maybe today, I don't know, maybe sometime this week, and just say, I orthopathy you. Because that's really what it's about. It's about loving one another with this agape love. God loves you. And he's called us to love one another in that same sacrificial, giving, suffering way that he went to the cross. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who, not, who didn't just talk about stuff, but that you actually lived it. That God, Jesus knew who he was, that he was the son of God, but yet he humbled himself. He came to earth. He lived as a servant, and he died on a cross. Jesus never said to us, no, I'm not all that great. Jesus said, yep, I'm the son of God, and now let me serve you. Let me love you. Let me die for you. God, teach us each and every day to receive that incredible love that you've given to us. And help us, Lord, to share that same kind of love with one another and with the world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.